This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, your host for today and visiting instructor of history at the University of Pittsburgh. Today, I'm speaking with Kelly Jones, professor of art history and archaeology at Columbia University. Dr. Jones is an award-winning scholar who has curated several international art exhibitions, including Now Dig This, Art and Black Los Angeles, 1960-1980, which Art Forum called one of the best exhibitions of 2012, and in 2016, she was awarded a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. We'll be talking about her new book, South of Pico, African-American Artists in Los Angeles in the 1960s and 1970s, which came out with Duke University Press in 2017. Kelly, welcome to the New Books Network. Great to be here, Steve. Great to be here. Let's begin first by hearing just a bit about you. How did you become interested in art and in art history? And what's your academic background more generally? I became interested in art and art history because I was raised in New York's East, in New York's East Village around a lot of artists. And, you know, when you're a kid, you think the whole world is your world just like your world. And I didn't realize until I got to college that nobody else knew living artists. For everybody else, artists were dead. And I was like, but wait a minute. I had the opposite, right? I thought all artists were alive. Uh, Until I started uh, getting into art history, I went to an arts high school uh, now called uh, LaGuardia in New York City. And then I went on to college at Amherst College in Massachusetts, where I did an interdisciplinary degree in art history, African-American studies, and Spanish, so that I could work on what I am still working on these many years later, which is the art of Latin America and Latinx artists and the art of African-Americans and artists in the African diaspora. I went on and got a PhD in, uh, at Yale University, and I've been teaching since 1999. Uh, I also, as you alluded to in the introduction, uh, before I went on to graduate school, I became a curator and was doing that for almost a decade before I decided to uh, you know, get some history be- behind what I was doing um, in the contemporary art world. Uh, I wanted to have some background. And then I came to find out about myself that I actually liked the ideas in art history. I liked uh, the kind of background. I liked writing. And I became a kind of what I call myself as a deinstitutionalized curator. So I've actually been curating 
uh, more time as a guest curator than actually being in institutions. But I did work at the Studio Museum in Harlem, the Walker Arts Center in Minneapolis, and uh, the Jamaica Center for Arts and Learning in Queens, among other places. And what road did you take to uh, to south of Pico? How did you become interested in the topic of African-American artists in Los Angeles specifically? Well, you know, when I go to Los Angeles and I speak, they say, wow, you must be from L.A. Uh, because you know so much about Los Angeles. And I said, no, <laughs> I'm actually from New York and I'm totally obsessed with Los Angeles because it is nothing like New York and it is everything like New York. So there's that, you know, it has palm trees, it's warm, uh, but they have a parallel history to what, you know, what is the standard history uh, of African-American artists or the standard history of artists in, in the United States in general? I mean, generally, art history is taught from the point of view of New York. And these other places are seen as faraway regions, you know, that don't really, you know, come up to snuff. Uh, so that was one reason, you know, that I was obsessed with Los Angeles. But the other reason is that when I graduated from college and became a curator, and I was a curator throughout the 1980s in institutional settings, most of the artists I met had come from California. I, it later dawned on me as I started uh, to do more research on them that they had left Los Angeles. Uh, they had worked in Los Angeles in the 1970s and had come to New York in the 80s. And in fact, they really had a big impact on the New York scene in the 1980s, people like David Hammonds, Marin Hassinger, uh, Melvin Edwards, uh, all these people had left California and come to New York. So I, I kind of looked, it was like the prequel to the, to the curating and the kind of art I was interested in in the 80s. I started to look back at the 70s. And that's a theme that actually comes up pretty regularly in the book that I'm sure we'll get to later, the kind of interconnectedness of a lot of different art scenes around the United States and around the world even that end up kind of having an epicenter in Los Angeles as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. A good entryway into the book, I think, is through through the title. So can you tell us what South of Pico means exactly and kind of in a more general sense, why the spatiality of Los Angeles as a city was so important to the African-American art scene in L.A. in the 60s and 70s? Absolutely. South of Pico um, is a phrase that I actually learned about when I was... The book originally had another title, right, which I won't tell you. <laughs> but... Um, I was working on this book and then I was doing research in Los Angeles and I ran into an, an old friend who was then the um, uh, senior curator at the Hammer Museum named Gary Garrels. And he asked me, we were in a gallery at Bergamot Station. He said, oh, what are you up to? Uh, and I said, well, you know, I'm working on this book on African-American artists in Los Angeles. Um, and we had actually worked together at um, the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis. That's how I knew him. And he said, oh, so are you going to do an exhibition? And I said, when I finish the book. And then um, he called me two weeks later and said, is the book done? Which, of course, it wasn't. Hmm. So 
uh, in between starting the book and finishing the book, now dig this happened to me. And uh, I say all this to say, I found out about the term South of Pico from my assistant, my fantastic assistant on Now Dig This, who was Naima Keith. She's now the deputy director of the California African American Museum in Los Angeles, but she is a native Angelino, and she told me about this term, South of Pico, which was like saying the other side of the tracks, right? This is where black people lived. They lived on the other side of the tracks, and which was South of Pico, and it really came from uh, the notion of restrictive covenants that you see in the early part of the 20th century, which as more and more African Americans moved to California, um, people started uh, putting, neighborhoods started putting up what we call restrictive covenants, which are uh, homeowners were not allowed to rent or sell to certain people, usually African-Americans, Mexicans, Jews, Japanese, right? So you could only sell to white people, right? So white homeowners could not sell or rent to black people. And so this kept neighborhoods segregated. And so one of the lines of demarcation was Pico Boulevard. And so most of the African-Americans up to a certain point lived in those areas, say up to the 50s. And then it started, you know, actually after 1948, those covenants were struck down in 1948. And uh, so people started being able to move. So it was a catchphrase for that. But the other... um, uh, notion of uh, Pico is that Pico Boulevard is named after Pio Pico, who was the last uh, Mexican governor of California. And so he, you know, he was also a person of African descent. And uh, so it's kind of a hidden history of blackness for me. And most people don't know he was, uh, you know, a person of African descent. So I, I loved finding that out, and I loved putting that in the book, that the person whose name kind of memorializes this boulevard that is a segregational uh, kind of space is actually a person of African descent. Tell us a little bit about the city of Los Angeles at the beginning of the period that you cover. What was what were some of the things that were drawing artists to California and to L.A. from other parts of the country in, say, the 1940s and the 1950s? California actually becomes the kind of last stop or one of the last stops of the great migration of African-Americans. Remember, most people of African descent were in the South because that's where they were brought to work during slavery. Once that ends, there's a slow, slow movement um, out of that space. And between World War I and World War II, that gets accelerated as people find work in uh, basically the war industries um, in other places north and west and California uh, kind of the jet propulsion lab uh, that is basically in the greater Los Angeles area is one of the kind of last uh, places and industries where people are still producing bombs, jets, things like that. And so it it draws uh, people there. On the other hand, um, we see people, you know, when we look at migration patterns, 
Uh, we see people from the California, uh, from the Carolinas going east. We see people from Georgia and Mississippi going straight up to Chicago, and we see uh, Louisiana and uh, Texas. Those people going west. Um, the other part was that you know sometimes for people from the south, such as somebody like a John Otterbridge, they initially go to uh, Chicago. And then, you know, after about 10 years, they say, you know, I can't take this weather. I'm moving to California. So it's also a thing about a kind of familiarity of climate and space. And uh, one of the strange things in many ways, I mean, obviously people are drawn for work, but people are also drawn for freedom, right? Uh, They want to go there because if we look at the history of the United States, California gets, you know, settled, quote unquote, uh, later, right? And so there's more freedom. Certainly there's more freedom in art. We can look at a kind of U.S. art scene as really, in the, even in the 19th century, being centered around New York, l- later Boston, Providence, places like that, and only slowly kind of moving out to, you know, Midwest, uh, Ohio, Chicago, um, and eventually the West Coast. So it's it's really a place of uh, intellectual freedom, artistic freedom, uh, that draws a lot of people and not only, certainly not only African-Americans. Kind of talking about California as an idea as much as a place as well, right? Absolutely. The first artist, or one of the first artists that you discuss in some detail in the book is Charles White. And I should take a second to say here that, you know, I imagine that many of our listeners don't have the book in front of them, but the book is filled with so many great images of the artwork that you talk about in question that it's worth it to go out and get a copy just for that reason alone, if nothing else. And, you know, this that doesn't necessarily translate well to uh, an audio medium like this, but it's worth it to look up the art while we're talking here for those listening. But anyway, that is side. You talk about Charles White in early on in the book, and I'm wondering if you can tell us about him and his art and why he was so crucial in pu- to putting uh, L.A. on the map as a place with a vibrant African-American artist community. Charles White is a great person to start with because he actually has a retrospective exhibition that is traveling the country. It, it started out in Chicago over the summer of 2018 and is right now in New York through, I think, January 2019, and then ends uh, in Los Angeles. Um, I think it opens in Los Angeles in February. So if you're in the sound of my voice and you're in either uh, New York or Chicago in the next six months or so, you can actually see this work in person. The important thing about um, Charles White is that he was you know, there were very few kind of what we would call today art stars among African-Americans um, in the earlier part of the 20th century or even up to mid-century. And among those was Jacob Lawrence and Charles White and Elizabeth Catlett was also one, although since she was a woman at that time, even less attention was paid to her. Uh, and I'm talking around 40s, 50s. So he he really develops a great reputation. He moves from Chicago to New York. And at a certain point, he'd actually served in World War II. He got tuberculosis. Um, he was discharged. But then those health challenges caused him to move to Los Angeles in 1956. So he comes there as the biggest 
African-American art star in the country, but certainly in the Los Angeles area. And his presence really stimulates uh, the African-American art scene, which is very small before that time. But it's not only his presence, it's his collaborative nature, because part of his art was, you know, he's part of social realism. Um, He's also had spent time in Mexico with the muralists. And also he had a very strong print background. In other words, he was a printmaker. So he was really interested in art for the people. He was really interested in collaborations. He was really interested in supporting younger artists, supporting young people, meaning children with art. Uh, So all that led to, he was the perfect person to be there to stimulate um, the art scene in Los Angeles. The other thing that was important about Charles White is he was fixated on history, as many people of his generation were, and he's born in about 1918. So he thought about um, the, you know, what uh, was important for African Americans to know um, in terms of their own history. He, you know, like many artists of his generation, he was kind of an audiodact and they were like historians, right? He, Jacob Lawrence, Elizabeth Catlett, they were, because, you know, we have African-American studies now. There were historically black colleges back in that time, but you could, it would be safe to say that most of the people um, did not know about African-American history. So they were actually disseminating African-American history uh, through art. Um, That was part of what they were doing. So for all those reasons, Charles White was a really important person to kind of step foot in Los Angeles in 1956 and stimulate that um, art-making tradition. Betty Saar is also an important member of the these early days of this scene. Can you tell us a little bit about her and her art? Betty Saar was a native Angelino, or is. She's still with us, uh, running around in her 90s up in uh, Topanga, Topanga Canyon in Los Angeles. Uh, she was a native Angelino, or is a native Angelino, and started out kind of... You know, of course, at that time, I talked about the kind of redlining that went on in terms of thinking about the term South of Pico. There was also a thing where, of course, African-Americans are tracked away from certain careers. So even though she was interested in art, uh, they tracked her into, you know, design, craft. No, you weren't going to be an artist. She became a social worker, uh, but still kind of doing interior design. Uh, she got married, started having children, uh, got into printmaking, decided to get a certificate as a teacher, and really starts. Uh, so she starts out doing kind of industrial design, jewelry, note cards, uh, you know, design like stuff, and then um, eventually moves into fine arts through the print medium, and from there moves into sculpture. Um, and what we call assemblage art, which is mixed media sculpture. Um, In the late 60s, she becomes one of the biggest art stars in Los Angeles of that time um, with the type of work that was combining um, interest in 
African-American culture, black power, but also feminism and also materiality. Uh, Assemblage practice, the practice of mixed media sculpture had kind of taken hold in the 50s, both on the East Coast in terms of people like Robert Rauschenberg, but also on the West Coast uh, with other artists like Ed Keenholz. And so it was something that was a you know, recognized style. The Museum of Modern Art does a big show kind of defining this style in 1961. So she's working in that tradition and it really takes hold. And uh, like many uh, women artists, they, even though, you know, people like David Hammonds, Houston Conwell, others really revered her practice at the time. Um, and she did get a lot of notice around, you know, early 70s. Um, she has, you know, it's kind of, she falls out of, I don't want to say favor, but she falls out of view for a while. Now that she's in her 90s, She's having shows all over the place. She had two shows in Europe in the last couple of years, in Amsterdam and then in Milan. She's having uh, several shows in New York coming up. Uh, So she's been getting her due, basically, as they say. That's wonderful that she's been getting recognition just in the last couple of years. That's really good to hear. Um, For many people... uh, Talking or thinking about Watts in the 1960s is most immediately evocative of the 1965 Watts Rebellion. But as you say in the book, as you describe in the book, the neighborhood was also an epicenter of the art scene in Los Angeles. Can you tell us a little bit about Watts and its centrality to the story you tell? Watts was an African-American neighborhood or became an African-American neighborhood Um in the 40s. Uh, It was always a mixed neighborhood and it was actually very kind of rural. There were farms there with Japanese internment um, and Japanese were, uh, had farms in that area. Um, They, uh, obviously the housing became available and black people who were coming from the great migration were then put in those homes. The homes of Japanese were cut up uh, and made into what you call kitchenette apartments. So it's from that moment that it really starts uh, burgeoning as a being recognized in many ways as an African-American neighborhood. Uh, one of the, interestingly, one of the markers of that neighborhood is the Watts Towers, this uh, kind of outsider art, huge sculpture slash building that is built actually by somebody who was an early resident, uh, Simon Rodia, an Italian uh, person of Italian descent who builds this fantastical creation in his backyard and then one day, quote unquote, disappears and leaves it there. But people adopt it. Um, they have this as a marker of that neighborhood. Um, and so Watts, you know, from the 40s on becomes more and more identified uh, as an African-American area, but also as an art center. Uh, the Watts Towers in the early 60s become identified uh, or named uh, kind of art space and the kind of little shack or the home that had been Mr. Rodia's home is turned into an art space and other spaces are added. And so it becomes an art center where 
Noah Purifoy becomes the first uh, director, uh, um, uh, formal director of Watts Towers uh, as an art space and formally called Watts Towers Art Center. Uh, eventually, um, by the early 70s, uh, John Otterbridge um, is also uh, the director of the Watts Towers Art Center for many years. So uh, the people who I talk about in the book, some of them uh, go in and out of that place as directors, but also it was a place for people to make art, to connect with the community, with the youth uh, in making art. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And if I remember um, from the book correctly, we almost lost the Watts Towers. Weren't they? Wasn't there a, a movement afoot to to have them removed, and then there was a counter movement which saved them at one point? Or am I misremembering that? Absolutely, that was earlier in the fifties. Once uh, Mister Rodia left, um, and you know this is in the you know a. African-American neighborhood, uh, what is going on in the 50s, you know, really from the 30s on is this idea of urban renewal. And what urban renewal really becomes is a way that African-American or lower class neighborhoods are kind of raised uh, to make room for other things. And we can see it in, you know, the Chicano neighborhood of Boyle Heights, uh, where they put um the stadium there. So this is, but this is something I also talk about how urban renewal actually becomes the kind of fodder for the assemblage art movement, the kind of destruction of African-American homes and neighborhoods. Uh, so even though this uh, Watts Towers was not necessarily built by an African-American, it became, it was in what became a black neighborhood. It became a marker of that neighborhood. And because Mr. Rodia had left and was no longer keeping it up, uh, the city was about to raise it, but then there was a committee formed uh, with uh, artists and community people who saw that this was an important thing to keep. So it is it is kept, uh, thankfully, and it is still there. You mentioned a moment ago the art form of assemblage, and in the book you describe assemblage as very important to understanding the African-American art scene in Los Angeles in the 60s and 70s. So for those who might not know, can you describe what exactly assemblage is and why it became such a vibrant art form in this time and in this place? Well, assemblage is uh, found object sculpture. So in, instead of taking a piece of wood and carving it, for instance, you will find things around and usually it's cast off stuff and usually it's consumer objects that are uh, have their their uses over their uses uh, depleted and they're trash and you take them dust them off and put them in an art object uh, or it's putting together various uh, different types of materials together it could also be thought of in that way and it's also three-dimensional as opposed to collage, which is a two-dimensional uh, pasted paper type of project. Uh, 
uh, it became assemblage, or if you want to uh, make it French, you might say assemblage, like collage, but I say assemblage. (laughs) (laughs) Assemblage um, becomes popular, as I mentioned, um, in the 50s, uh, more or less, uh, on the East Coast and the West Coast, and it becomes a very popular way of making, um, as well as in Europe, um, but in talking about the U.S. context, um, it becomes a, a popular way of making where people are thinking about context. People are moving away from uh, the idea of, you know, something that is holistic, um, you know, piece of wood or welded steel in that way. And they're making these found object uh, sculptures. African-Americans begin to, they're also working in this mode. What makes it slightly different on the West Coast for African-American tradition is that when the Watts Rebellion hits in 1965 and the neighborhood is destroyed to some degree, you have a lot of detritus around. Noah Purifoy is uh, one of the first people in an African-American context that decides he wants to make art out of the detritus of the rebellion. And the rebellion happens in August 65. By the spring of 66, he is hosting um, an exhibition called 66 Signs of Neon, which is uh, purportedly of found object art or assemblage based on the detritus of the Watts Rebellion. So, In doing that, he wants to think about the rebellion as a process and these objects as exemplifying a certain efficacy uh, in their making. So the kind of rebellion itself, this kind of collective um, African-American or African-American collective spirit is kind of making these objects with the help of the artist. This is his idea. So that's why it it takes on an importance at that time. Um, That is Purifoy's idea. Um, John Otterbridge has another idea in the chapter, which is chapter two uh, in South of Pico. I I look at three different artists and their kind of approaches. One is Noah Purifoy using uh, kind of what he calls junk as... Uh, a way of thinking about African-American life and taking it from something discarded to something of beauty. Uh, John Otterbridge, he's using it to think about the ancestral. He's always, you know, thinking about kind of uh, him also being from the South, from North Carolina, thinking about different ways of making what we would call folk or vernacular traditions um, and looking at assemblage through that lens. And then Betty Saar is finding things in swap meets and really wants to repurpose some of the negative connotations also of uh, cast-offs, but she's primarily, or at least to a certain degree, looking at uh, kind of stereotypical images, Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben, and using those as kind of images to be discarded, uh, which are everywhere, and repurposing them as warriors, as revolutionaries. Um, Yeah. I... uh... 
maybe a little shamefully hadn't heard of Betty Sarr before, and I found her art in the book to be very affecting. It was it's really quite quite striking stuff. Yeah. What what were some of the institutional obstacles that black artists in LA faced when they were trying to exhibit their art? And then how and and what methods did they take to fighting and overcoming these barriers? Black artists what they did, I mean many artists will do this actually is that artists who do not have means to show their work, create their own exhibition opportunities, and these artists are no different. They, some of the artists themselves, people like Suzanne Jackson, Alonzo Davis, and Dale Brockman Davis, uh, created exhibition opportunities for themselves. Uh, They created galleries. So Alonzo Davis and Dale Brockman Davis um, started the Brockman Gallery in 1967 as a place to show African-American artists. Because remember, up to this point, there are no you know, what we would say is African-American galleries, culturally specific galleries, people are not showing this work. Commercial galleries are not showing this work. So the artists take it upon themselves, certain artists. Suzanne Jackson begins Gallery 32. Uh, She's a painter. Uh, She starts that um, as well to, again, show the work of her contemporaries. And then Samela Lewis, who's an amazing person, starts a museum, has about three galleries, starts a magazine, makes films. Uh, She does it all. And she's teaching at the same time. So uh, these were artists who, you know, got tired of waiting to be shown and took it upon themselves to create their own opportunities. Now, many of these opportunities lasted for a couple of years, uh, but say the Brockman Gallery, that lasts uh, for over 20 years. Samela Lewis has various uh, exhibition spaces um, into the 80s. Um, Suzanne Jackson's Gallery, Gallery 32, lasts for only a couple of years, but it does give you know, support to artists and uh, creates a benchmark for shows and eventually... Um, mainstream or what you would, yeah, you would just say mainstream or your quote unquote traditional spaces begin to pick up on these artists. So the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, for instance, begins to show this work Um, in the late 60s into the early 70s. um, As did, you know, we see, you know, with protest, civil rights and also black power protests, museums, begin to open up to African-American artists in a more sustained way. We also see this on the East Coast in New York with places like the Whitney Museum, the Museum of Modern Art, and uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. But not without protest, right? People had to protest. So on the one hand, you have African-American artists protesting to get into these traditional art centers. And on the other hand, they're creating their own opportunity. So both things are happening. Performance pieces are also a critical part of the African-American LA art scene in the 60s and as we get into the 1970s as well. Can you tell us a little bit about this art form? Um, Maybe tell us in particular about Ceremony for a Freeway Fet and other quote-unquote in-motion works and how they were received and why they became so powerful and so popular? Performance art 
um, as art history goes along, you know, style changes, artists become interested in other things. Uh, we go from kind of traditional painting and sculpture, things that are solidly on the floor and solidly on the wall to something like assemblage, which kind of troubles that idea uh, to something like performance where people's bodies become the artwork. Um, the, the art is on the body. The body becomes a framework for thinking through different ideas, um, both materially in terms of costume and and other kind of additions that people might put on their bodies to the the body of the artists themselves. And and this is a way to connect directly with the audience rather than waiting for a space to invite you in for uh, to show your work. Uh, so Sangani Gudi is an important figure that we talk about, uh, that I talk about in that chapter. Uh, Sangani Gudi, Marin Hassinger, Houston Conwell, and David Hammonds. David Hammonds is probably the most well-known artists in the book. And this is, people really know him from the 1990s, again, in the New York setting. But this is going back to his early roots as an artist. Um, it's a way to shake things up. And so those artists that I mentioned often performed together as a group called Studio Z and did performances that were, you know, the great thing about performance, <clears throat> as I said, you don't need a space. You can just be on the street one day and decide to do this. Ceremony for Freeway Fets in 1978 is a great example because it takes place under where else? The Los Angeles freeway system. And interestingly, you know, bringing us back to social issues is that the freeways, you know, as urban renewal is taking place, uh, there are a lot of freeway protests, right? Because freeways are cutting through people's neighborhoods, and they're not happy with that. So part of um, actually having uh, a performance under the freeway is addressing that in, in one way or another, consciously or not consciously. Uh, so Nanguti has a one-time performance under the freeway with a band of musicians. Uh, they are enveloped in her signature sculpture from that time, which uses pantyhose and sand. And um, and then she performs. She and Marin Hassinger had both been very involved with dance in their early years when they tried to major um, in it in college, they are blocked because they don't have the right bodies for it. And so this, of course, goes back to all other kinds of discrimination against the body. And of course, we can see this in the history of modern dance, the history of ballet in this country, and, you know, the kind of lack of particularly women uh ballerinas, for instance, or modern dancers, because people can always use male dancers, I found out. Uh, so they had to overcome that. So they they both kind of go into visual art, Marin Hassinger and Sangin and Goody, but then uh, they bring the kind of performative back in their, um, in their works of performance as well. So they're, they're both doing kind of sculpture, mixed media sculpture and performance together. 
We've talked a little bit about how the L.A. art scene in the 60s and 70s, how it didn't exist in a vacuum and how it was, in fact, linked into these larger networks of artists and artist spaces and everything else. Can you describe a bit how this was the case and how the African-American Los Angeles art scene was connected to larger, even global, worldwide artist networks? Well, Singin' and Goody is a, is a perfect example, and she is... Uh, somebody who goes to Japan in 1966, where she lives for a year, and gets into, because she doesn't really have great Japanese, uh, she is not really studying with artists. There's also a kind of rejection of Americans because of uh, the war in Southeast Asia. And so, but what she does do is she's able to study dance. So she studies no Buto and Kabuki traditions. Uh, and what happens, she's there for a year, she comes back and she um, incorporates these ideas into her, what would become her performance practices. Um, you know, when I first started working on this project, I looked at her costuming, uh, let's just take ceremony for freeway fets, and I read it as, you know, uh, miming in certain ways, African masquerades, African performance, traditional African uh, masquerade performances. As I looked further into what she had studied in Japan, I realized that these forms could just have easily come out of a Japanese context. And so that was really wonderful. The other exciting part about it is when you see, you know, Japanese migration to this country, it really, um, or modern Japanese migration, it mimics what happens with African-American migration. In other words, people start out in kind of small spaces, uh, smaller towns, move to bigger towns and cities, and then move to larger areas like Los Angeles. So you see people going to Hawaii, uh, then you see people going to smaller towns in California and eventually going to larger urban centers. Uh, so there was also that there, um, you know, so there's some great parallels in looking at the kind of, uh, looking at global parallels between African-American artists and other artists, and particularly in Los Angeles, where of course, Japanese culture and Asian culture generally is uh, present in a different way than it is on the East Coast. And finally, what do you see as the legacy of these artists working at this time and in this place? Who are some of the heirs to this art tradition? In the book, for instance, you talk about Sanford Biggers as one uh, such artist. Who are some of the others and what's the legacy of this art scene? Well, Sanford Biggers is certainly uh, someone, as you mentioned, I do talk about in the conclusion, just in terms of his practice, multimedia, performative, uh, and also growing up in Los Angeles. Growing up, um, his parents are uh, doctors, and so, uh, in fact, physicians, doctors, were some of the uh, most important collectors for the generation of Hammonds and Sengen and Goody and others. So uh, it's, a, it's a nice kind of transfer there to somebody like Biggers, who then uh, takes up also the interest in Asia, 
He also lives in Asia for a while. He also lives in Japan. But we can see the whole scene, you know, the vibrant scene that's in Los Angeles now. Somebody like a Lauren Halsey, for interest. Somebody like a Lauren Halsey, uh, for example, who's working today in Los Angeles, or somebody, and she's a somebody who does installation, mixed media sculpture. Uh, then another artist named E.J. Hill, who's also based there and, and does some very amazing performances. Uh, so the tradition continues. Uh, it's still a vibrant scene. You still have vibrant spaces. As I mentioned, Naima Keith is uh, the deputy director at California African American Museum. You have Erin Cristoval at the Hammer Museum. And so you still have this kind of vibrant community that continues um, to be very exciting in the 21st century. It's a wonderful book. And uh, for you know someone even like myself who doesn't have much, if anything, as far as an art history background goes, it immediately drew me in. And you touch on a number of different topics. And it's a very uh, dense and rich book. But I'm wondering if there's one takeaway that you hope that readers come away from this book with, what might that, what might that be? One takeaway. That's a, that's a hard one. But I would say, you know, the depth and breadth of the United States. There's so much history. What kept me writing that book is just finding out all these stories about what happened in the past, finding out about African-American histories, finding out about the histories of uh, art in California, which, as I mentioned, are not narrated as much, and uh, just finding out what this country is really made of. Uh, that's really exciting. So I think it's uh, great for people, as you said, people who don't have a lot of art history, don't know much about African-American history, don't know much about California history, or know a little bit about any or all of those things, but just to get to know more about how that, uh, how the late 20th century was narrated by artists of African descent. And before we let you go, can we get a preview of what you've been working on since this came out? Maybe what your next project might be? My next project is a book about global conceptual art networks. Right now it's called uh, Art is an Excuse. And so, you know, when you ask me about what were the global links, I kind of start from there with somebody like Senga Ngudi, but this time looking at the Japanese context more closely uh, about what she would have seen in the 1960s in Japan and thinking about those artists. It also takes into account Latin American artists, somebody like a Felipe Ehrenberg, uh, somebody uh, like, uh, and Felipe Ehrenberg's from Mexico, somebody like a David Lamelas, who's originally from Argentina, but touches down in Los Angeles. What I'm interested in is how these histories of art, which we narrate as separate, actually are parallel or overlapping. And sometimes the artists don't even know that they are actually in uh, communication. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're just in communication with the work itself. So I'm looking at how, once again, in the 60s and 70s, what we call conceptual art, which is this sense of this kind of dematerialized or not traditional painting and sculpture, these kind of more avant-garde ways of making that crop up in the 60s become ways of communicating across time, space, and across the globe. So I'm that's what I'm at work on right now. 
Kelly Jones is professor of art history and archaeology at Columbia University. Her newest book is South of Pico, African-American artists in Los Angeles in the 1960s and 1970s, which came out with Duke University Press in 2017 and which just won an American Book Award. Thanks again for joining us today, Kelly. Thank you. 